The scripture passage we'll be looking at this morning is found in the 24th and 25th chapter of the book of Exodus. We're going to begin our reading in verse 12 of Exodus 24 and read through verse 9 of Exodus 25. Exodus 24, verse 12, through chapter 25, verse 9. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us while we, until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twinned linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Last week, we began the Advent series of sermons by looking at our, in our last message on the book of 2 Timothy, at the loneliness of the Apostle Paul as he was in a cold, dark dungeon, Roman dungeon, in prison, waiting for his execution. And we saw how in that last chapter of 2 Timothy, he cried out in loneliness for those that he cared for, those that he had mentored. And we looked at how Paul dealt with that incredible dark loneliness that maybe you and I would never have to face, anything like it. And I made the point near the end of that sermon that sometimes the reason that people are lonely, it's because they're looking for people to give to them in relationships things that only a relationship with God can provide. Sometimes we are lonely because we are looking for other sinners like ourselves to give us things in relationships that only God himself can provide. Years ago, it was kind of popular in pop psychology to talk about codependency. We used to hear about it all the time. Codependency was a term that was used to describe an unhealthy reliance on another person for your emotional and psychological well-being an unhealthy reliance on another person for your emotional and psychological well-being. Well, the scriptures tell us that the cure for that kind of codependency, that unhealthy reliance on another person, the cure for that 
is a deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures tell us. During this Advent season, we are going to look at the salvation that we long for, the promise that we have in Christ. And we're going to look at what the purpose of our salvation is. Maybe you don't think about that very often. What is the purpose of our salvation? Jesus spoke to that purpose in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, when he said to the Father, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. In that prayer, Jesus summed up the whole reason that he came, the reason that he took upon himself human flesh, dwelt in our midst, and went to the cross, that we may be with him to see his glory. There's the purpose of your salvation. When you think about why you're saved, too often we think about reasons such as, God saved me in order to rescue me from the state that I was in. Or God saved me in order to release me from the power of sin that so entangled my life. Or God saved me in order to forgive me for my sins and take away my guilt and shame. Or God saved me in order to give me eternal life. Or God saved me in order to make me holy. Is that, were any of those the purpose for why you're saved? Well, yes, in one sense, all of them, all of the above are reasons why God saved you. But none of them are the main reason, the main purpose for which he sent his son to shed his blood to save you. None of them. The main reason is that we might be with him, that we might see his glory, and then worship him. That's the reason for our salvation, the main purpose. We get so focused on being free from guilt and shame or free from the penalty of hell for eternity or the gift of eternal life. All these things. Freedom from addiction to the sins that have such a strong grip on us. But that's not the main purpose. Those are just the side benefits of God sending his son to die for us so that we can be with him, see his glory, and worship him. During the next three Sundays, concluding this Sunday, we're going to be looking at the core promise of God's covenant with his people. And that's what we focus on when we call Jesus Emmanuel. In the Old Testament, it said that when the Messiah came, he would be Emmanuel. And that means God with us. The purpose of his coming was so that God would be with us, so that we would be with God, so that we would see his glory and worship him. So we're beginning this morning by looking at Exodus. We're going to look at Exodus this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 1 next week, and then we'll look at the end of Scripture in Revelation 21 and 22, a couple of days before Christmas. And we're going to be focusing on this Emmanuel promise, the purpose of Christ's coming, that God would be with us, that we would be with God. And we're going to start here in Exodus. Exodus covers really one of the most important periods in the history of salvation, the history of redemption. Think about the monumental significance of what happens in the book of Exodus. First of all, you have the deliverance of God's people from bondage in Egypt. And then you have them being brought through the Red Sea, being delivered through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where God gives him his law, gives his people his revealed will, that they might know how they might serve him and please him. And then 
The third major event in the book of Exodus is that he gives them the tabernacle, the design for the tabernacle. And what's amazing about the book of Exodus is we tend to focus on the Exodus, the actual deliverance from bondage, but the focus of the book of Exodus is on worship. The focus is on the, the, the ultimate goal of Exodus is to show God's people being with God, seeing his glory and worshiping him at the tabernacle. And again, we're back to that main purpose. Alex Motyer is a commentator, and in his commentary about this passage, he says, the tabernacle sums up the whole divine purpose in redemption. The tabernacle was the Old Testament visual aid for the gospel. As the Old Testament people knew the gospel, the tabernacle was the visual aid that illustrated the gospel as they understood it. Remember when, Pharaoh, when Moses went to Pharaoh, the great king of Egypt, the most powerful ruler on the earth, and God sent Moses to confront him? Remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? Let my people go. For what purpose? Why was he to let his, the people of God go from bondage to slavery? So that they might worship me, he said. That was the purpose of their deliverance that they might go to him and worship him, not to relieve their suffering, not to bring judgment on the Egyptians, not to bring them to the promised land. All those things were good and side effects of his main purpose, which was to bring his people to himself that they might see his glory and worship him. So how does the tabernacle fit into this? Well, this is a watershed moment in the life of God's people. For the first time, God's people would have a centralized location where they would gather together to worship God. Earlier in redemptive history, God would show up seemingly from our perspective randomly. And he would, appear, he would show himself to an individual, somebody like Abel or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. And he would speak to this individual and he would give them revelation about the covenant that was being developed. And they would see his glory in some visual form, not certainly not the fullness of his glory, but they would see some representation of his glory and they would build an altar out of stone and they would offer blood sacrifices. They would sacrifice animals' blood on the altar and then they would often mark that place with a pillar of stones. And that would be holy ground, a very special place where God met with one of his people. And that's how God's interactions directly with people happen until this point where God now says, I am going to set up a place that is permanently in your midst where you can meet with me, where you can be with me, where you can see my glory and you can worship me. Abraham's family has become a great nation of hundreds of thousands of people. And they now stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and God has made Mount Sinai one of those holy places, holy ground where he would meet with not just one person, not just Moses, but with all of his people. And the tabernacle was to be a picture of the covenant relationship that he had developed with his people. The tabernacle displays what the covenant of God was all about. Back when God chose Abraham and his family to be his people, 
He gave him a promise. And the core of that covenant promise was, I will be your God. You will be my people. In other words, God with us or Emmanuel. I will be your God. You will be my people. And that promise is repeated in many different forms, all the way from the book of Genesis, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation ends by reiterating that same promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's a covenant. It's what we pattern marriage after, is God's relationship with his people. Two parties coming together, taking vows to one another, and being bound together in an intimate relation forever. At that point, when God chose Abraham and his family, he said, you're going to become a great nation. Your descendants are going to become a great nation, and they will suffer under slavery for 400 years, but I will deliver them and I will bring them to myself. And so at the beginning of the book of Exodus, notice, I just want you to listen carefully to the language of the charge that God gives to Moses when he sends him to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go. Listen to the charge, how he uses this covenant language to summarize the purpose of what God is doing. This is Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. God says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. There's that Emmanuel promise. And God did just that. With Moses as the, as the mediator of the covenant, he leads the people out of Egypt. He brings judgment upon the Egyptians through the ten plagues. He leads the people through the Red Sea on dry land, and then destroys their enemies in the Red Sea, and then he brings them here as we come to chapter 24 and 25 to the foot of Mount Sinai. And notice, actually, they arrive there in, in, in chapter 19, and then chapters 20 through 23 are the giving of the law to Moses. The Ten Commandments and then all of the case study laws that came, come after it. But in chapter 19, when they arrive at Mount Sinai... God says this in chapter 19, verse 4. God tells Moses to tell the people this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself. That's what it was all about, to bring them to himself. And then what proceeds then, and when you get to chapter 24 and 25, it's very much like a marriage ceremony, a covenant ceremony between God and his people. It begins by God telling his people in beginning of chapter 24 to consecrate themselves, to wash themselves, to cleanse themselves, to show that they are dirty sinners who are unacceptable to God, but God is going to give them grace and provide cleansing. And so they're to wash themselves. And then the signs, the symbols of God's immediate presence become visible on the top of the mountain. Fire. Lightning, a deep, a deep, dark cloud, and a trumpet 
representing the very voice of God. The people are not allowed to touch the mountain. They're not only not allowed to go onto the mountain where God's presence is symbolized, but they're not allowed to touch the mountain. Matter of fact, God tells Moses, whoever touched the mountain shall be put to death. God is a holy God. Sinners cannot come into his presence unless their sin is atoned for. Only Moses, the God-appointed mediator, would be allowed to approach God on the mountain to the top of the mountain where the very symbols of his presence were. But then as Moses comes into the camp, he, at that point, at the beginning of chapter 4, he receives an invitation from God to a very special event. Not just for him, but to the base of the mountain, partway up the mountain, he's allowed to bring with him his, his right-hand man, Joshua, who would succeed him later, and then Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, who were the priests of the people of God, and then 70 elders representing the people of God. And this group of men, leaders among the people, were invited to come up onto the mountain. And before he goes, Joshua reads the book of the law. He reads these commandments and all of the subsequent instructions. He reads the book of the law to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain. And they take a vow. They do the right thing. They say, this is God's revealed will. We will obey God's will. I've read people say, well, that was foolish for them to take that vow because they couldn't keep their vow. No, it was right to make the vow, but that's why then Moses builds an altar. And he sheds the blood of innocent animals, takes half the blood, spreads it on the altar, takes the other half of the blood and sprinkles it on the people showing that God knows that they will not keep that vow to obey his law. But still he would show grace. Still he would accept them through the shed blood of a substitute in their place. And then Moses, Joshua, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the priests, and the 70 elders go up on the mountain. They go partway up the mountain, not to the top, but partway up. And there, as the representatives of God's people, it says, and they saw the God of Israel. Don't you wish that Moses had elaborated at this point? What did you see, Moses? What did God look like? We don't know exactly what they saw, but we do know that they didn't see the fullness of God's glory. They did not see God face to face because later we know in chapters 32 and 33, Moses is going to ask to see the fullness of God's glory. Obviously, he didn't see it in this incident. He later says, God, show me all of your glory. And God says, you can't see all my glory. You're not perfected yet. You're still a sinner among sinners in a fallen world. You cannot look upon all of my glory. I will turn my back to you. You can see my back. You can see a small representation of my glory. I saw a glimpse of my glory. And so we know that they didn't see God face to face. And I think that's why in the description that you see there in the middle of chapter 24, it doesn't describe what God looks like at all, because I don't think they could look at his face. What does it describe? It describes what's under God's feet. I think this is a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ. It speaks of feet. I think they literally saw feet. But under his feet, they saw this deep, 
blue, sapphire, clear as crystal pavement. And that's what, you know, I said, Moses, you see God's glory and you're telling me about what the pavement is under his feet. But that, isn't that like every prophet who sees some manifestation of the glory of God? They never tell us what his face looks. They never tell us what, what he looks like. They always describe what's around him. When Isaiah saw the glory of God in the throne room, he described everything around the throne but could not describe God because he could not see him face to face. When Ezekiel saw the, the vision in the beginning of the, of, of the book of Ezekiel, when he saw the vision of God, he could only describe his throne but could not describe how God looked because he could not look upon him face to face. When the apostle John was brought up into the very throne room of heaven, he describes everything around the throne but cannot exp explain what the, one, what the one who looks like on the throne. But verse 11 is the important verse here. And he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. In grace, because of the promise of the shed blood of one that would atone for their sins, he allowed and accepted these sinners into his presence had fellowship with them, they saw his glory, they worshiped, and he ate and drank with them. In ancient covenant ceremonies, when the covenant was sealed and ratified, that was the sign of friendship, as the two parties would sit down and have a meal of friendship together. They'd break bread together. And that's what happened on Mount Sinai. It was the old covenant version of communion of the Lord's Supper, a shadow of the far greater supper to come. But then God, after the covenant has been ratified, the ceremony is over, God then invites Moses to leave the other men, go to the top of the mountain, and this time he doesn't give him the law, he gives, them, gives to Moses the pattern of the tabernacle, which is a picture of the way that we approach God by grace. Seven chapters in the book of Exodus are devoted to detailed instructions that God gives to Moses on how the tabernacle is to be constructed and how the rituals of the, of the tabernacle are to be carried out. In chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, it's, God says to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, holy ground, a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Exactly as I show you. It's stressed over and over in these chapters that Moses is not to deviate, he's not to innovate, he's not to divert from what God has told him exactly how the tabernacle is to be constructed and how the rituals of the tabernacle are to be carried out. The tabernacle, the word in the Hebrew means tent of meeting. God asked for a tent to dwell in because his people dwelt in tents. And in the structure of the camp of Israel, you, the way it was to be laid out is the 12 tribes of Israel were to camp out in their tents as they were semi-nomadic. They would camp out in their tents in a circle around the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, God's tent, which was at the middle of the camp. In ancient cultures, semi-nomadic cultures, the middle of the encampment was where the king's tent was. And so God's tent was to be in the middle because he was their only true king. 
They were to do his will, to follow his law, to serve him, and to worship him. It is that presence of God in the midst of his people that gives the people of God their security. Psalm 46 is written about the later form of the tabernacle, the temple, being in the midst of Jerusalem, representing God's people. And Psalm 46 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is where your security lies. Is God with you or not? Does God dwell with you or not? There's where your, your, your psychological, emotional stability is found. God is with us. He dwells with us. And so as the worshiper approached the tabernacle, as he came, he is within the camp. Outside the camp is the outer darkness, the place of the nations, the place of darkness, the place where the lost are. Inside the camp, if you were a member of the covenant, you could approach the tabernacle and you were allowed to come into the outer court. The outer court was made up of, a, of curtains that made up a fence around the central tent in the middle. And any member of the covenant could walk into the outer court, and as you walked in there, what you saw were two major pieces of furniture. One was a bronze laver filled with water, a huge basin filled with water. And that's where the priests, not the people, but the priests would wash themselves so that they could be consecrated to enter into the tent in the middle of the outer court so that they could do the work of serving of worship in the tent. The other major piece of furniture was the altar of burnt offering, a huge altar where the worshiper would approach the priests at the altar. He'd be carrying his sacrificial animal and he would give this perfect animal without defect. He would give this animal to the priest. The priest would take the animal and depending on what period of history or what interpretation you hear, either the worshiper himself or the priest would cut the throat of the animal and kill the animal and then pour out the blood at the foot of the altar and then offer the animal as a sacrifice on the altar. Before that shedding of blood took place, the worshiper would place his hands on the animal, acknowledging that he deserved to be destroyed for eternity for his sin but this animal is going to take his place. The animal's blood would be shed in his place. Then in that central tent, once the priests and only the priest entered into the holy place, which was the first section of that tent, there you would see symbols of the very presence of God. The table of showbread, which had fresh bread on it every day, which represented God as our provider. He who is the bread of life to his people. And then you would have the golden candlestick with the seven branches, with seven lights on the four, seven branches of the candlestick. And it was always lit to represent that he is the light, the truth, the life of his people. And then you had the golden altar of incense. And when the incense was placed in it and the smoke ascended, it was the aroma of the incense was represented the, uh, the blood-covered prayers of God's people. The blood has been shed. Now the prayers of God's people are acceptable to God. He will be with them. He will hear them. And he will look favorably upon their prayers. In the language of the Old Testament, the aroma of their prayers would be sweet to his nostrils. And then there was the inner sanctum, the most holy place, the holy of holies. 
where the Ark of the Covenant was situated. The Ark of the Covenant, which represented the throne of God. Inside it was the, ten, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron that budded to show that Aaron was the God-appointed high priest, and the pot of manna, which represented God's provision for his people in the wilderness. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the two cherubim, their wings overshadowing the seat in the middle, the throne of God. And it is there, into that section, into the Holy of Holies, only one, one day a year on the Day of Atonement could one priest, the high priest, and only the high priest, enter into that inner sanctum, into the very the place where God's presence was most represented, his throne was situated, and he would take the blood of the atonement and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the throne of God, showing that the blood has been shed, the people can be forgiven, God can be reconciled to sinners like you and me so that they might see his glory and worship him. This was a picture of how we approach as sinners, how we approach a holy God who cannot look upon sin, who must punish sin, who must banish sinners forever. It is only by means of grace through the shed blood. The tabernacle was a shadow of Jesus Christ in his work. That's the significance. It's easy to read these minute, excruciating details about how the, the tabernacle was to be constructed and how the rituals were to be done and, and just be overwhelmed by the tediousness of it and not see the forest for the trees. When you understand that this was a picture of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, then it deepens your understanding of him and your understanding of what he's done for us and it deepens your gratitude for the gospel message. Moses was told repeatedly to make this tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that was shown to him by God on Mount Sinai. Even after it was constructed, they were to follow exactly God's instructions about how to set it up, how to tear it down when it was time to move from place to place, how to handle it, how to transport it. It had to be done exactly as God intended, lest God break out in judgment. And he did break out in judgment when these exact instructions weren't followed. Just a couple of examples. Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, the two sons who went with him up onto the mountain to see God's glory and to eat and, and, and to drink there with God. Those two sons were struck dead. Why? Because they, get, they, they innovated on the mixture of the, of the incense that was used in the altar of incense to represent the prayers of God's people. They didn't follow the recipe exactly. And they were struck dead for not following God's instructions. Later, in the transport of the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, Uzzah, a man named Uzzah, was, was standing by the cart on which the Ark of the Covenant was being transported, and it and it hit a rut and the ark started to topple off and he reached out to steady the ark to keep it from falling and God struck him dead. Why? Because no non-priest could handle, not, not even one of that particular family of priests was the only priest that could handle the ark of the covenant. He didn't follow God's exact instructions. Why all this emphasis on exactitude? Why all this emphasis on doing it exactly as God said, lest he break out in judgment against you? It's not because God is overly harsh. It's 
It's not because God is OCD. It's not because God is nitpicky. It's because the tabernacle and its rituals were a picture of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is given to us for. The book of Hebrews is to show us how the tabernacle is a picture of Christ. And not only a picture of who Christ is, but all that he has done for us to bring us to God, to fulfill that Emmanuel promise so that we can be with God and God can be with us. In Hebrews chapter 9, I encourage you to study it in depth. It describes the tabernacle. We read that section earlier in our responsive reading. And then it moves on to talk about the blood sacrifices that the priests offered over and over and over again. And the writer of Hebrews says the reason that these had to be offered over and over again is because it shows in his words that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. And so let me pick up the reading there in Hebrews 9, verse 11, those last couple of verses we read together. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not in this, of this creation, he's speaking of Christ entering into the heavenly presence of the literal uh, presence of God in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Skipping down to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the earthly temple, tabernacle, the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these, the Old Testament animal sacrifices, these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with his own blood, with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. That's deep theology, but then chapter 10 gets into the immediate application for every day of our lives as believers when it picks up in verse 19 of chapter 10 and says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The tabernacle and its rituals were a picture of, of Christ and his saving work for us, the means by which a sinner like you and me can be with God. We can see his glory. We can worship him, not just now, but forever. That's why new covenant worship, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, new covenant worship doesn't have all these detailed instructions. We don't have a place, a, a earthly copy of heavenly things to teach us this lesson by means of a visual aid. We have the real thing. We have the one true ultimate high priest who has offered the once for all sacrifice of his own blood on the cross so that we can go through the curtain into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. We can behold the glory of God as Christ is seated on the throne. 
That's why we worship anywhere as long as we worship in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ. The strict penalty that was given against those who would tamper or change or modify or mishandle or misuse the Old Testament tabernacle and its rituals, those strict penalties are about the gospel, not about how we worship, not the details of how we worship. The New Testament doesn't give us much in the way of details about, you know, it doesn't give us a strict liturgy to follow. It doesn't give us a strict set of words to say. It gives us broad principles because Christ has done away with the tabernacle. He's done away with the animal sacrifices. He's done away with the Old Testament priesthood. Now we have immediate access to the presence of God. The New Testament teaches us that we are the tabernacle. We are the temple of God. He dwells in our midst. And wherever we gather in the name of Christ, our great high priest, he is with us. He dwells with us. It's false gospels that get the harsh language of the new covenant. Galatians chapter 1, remember what Paul said, if anyone comes to you and brings a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different means of salvation, if anyone brings you a different gospel than one we brought to you, let him be accursed. There's where the harsh language of the new covenant is. Do not tamper with what God has revealed about who his son is and what he has come to do. There's only one gospel there's only one Jesus Christ, the biblical Christ, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for your patience with kind of covering a lot of material there leading up to what the tabernacle is about. But let me just leave you by reiterating my first point. The key to mental, emotional, and spiritual health for a born-again Christian is a close relationship with your God. That is the key to your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Yes, you need other people in your life. We are wired for relationships, but that's what we saw last week. You don't need other relationships in the same way that you need God. And if your relationship with God, if you draw near to God, if you seek to see his glory and worship him, he will give you that strength, that security, that stability, knowing that God is with you. And you can endure any dark tunnel of this life that he asks you to travel through. Let's pray. Father, we are all broken people. We are all mentally deficient, spiritually deficient, emotionally deficient. We are all on one place or another in the spectrum between the devil on the one end and Christ on the other. We are all broken. We are not what we were meant to be, but by your grace, you have drawn us into your presence that we might see your glory, that we might worship you, and you've provided the means through your son, Jesus Christ. Continue to remake us into his image, we pray. But do so by drawing us close to you and showing us more of your glory as we grow in grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.